Well, that intro went well. <laughs> what just happened? Uh, hi, everybody. Welcome to FSU Coach Life. Uh, so sorry about my intro, which just crashed on me. Uh, I'm joined by Doug Lamov this, this afternoon. Doug, thanks so much for joining me. If you wouldn't mind, just give us a, a brief recap of, of kind of your, your career history and, you know, and Sure. Uh, thanks for having me on, by the way. I'm really, I'm really happy to be here. So um, my background is in teaching. Uh, I was a teacher and a school principal and then um, helped to start a network of schools called Uncommon Schools. And in the course of doing so, ended up writing a book about teaching uh, that was kind of, uh, I guess, on, based on an idea borrowed from sport, which is game film. Um, <clears throat> I, you know, was, uh, I was running a network of schools. We hired really great enthusiastic people who wanted to change the equation of opportunity for kids in, in uh, neighborhoods that weren't served by great schools. And they go into classrooms and they come back at, back to us with these questions like, what do I do if and what do I do when? And they were really, really challenging questions and there weren't really answers to them uh, that we could find and, you know, in the, in the training the teachers got. And so I ran a, you know, a couple of data sets to find examples of teachers who taught in high poverty environments who were really, really successful and got incredible results for kids. And I went out and I went to watch some of those teachers and they were amazing. And I was like, no one is going to believe what I've seen here unless I videotape it. And so I brought a video camera and tried to do what I'd often done as an athlete, which is like to chop up the video of a teacher's lesson into tiny little 30 second, one minute, two minute clips based around an idea. And that ultimately became this book uh, that I wrote called Teach Like a Champion. It's now in its, uh, now it's in its 3.0 version, which just came out a couple weeks ago. Um, and somewhere along the way, um, I guess the, the first sports friend, first sports organization that reached out to me was U.S. Soccer. Uh, I played soccer in college. It's always been a game that I've loved. And they said, you know, we think about coaching as teaching. And would you be interested in talking to us and some of our coaches about teaching moves that are applicable to coaching? And so I was I was thrilled by that, and I said yes. And I start I did a couple of workshops for them, and I felt like I don't think the workshops were that good, honestly. <laughs> they just um, there was a lot to understand about the kinds of coaching, of kinds of teaching challenges that coaches face. I really do believe that uh, coaching is a is a form of teaching, but it's a very it's a unique and distinctive form of teaching. And so I spent five or six years sort of. Um, trying to answer the questions that coaches were asking me, you know, like a, a typical way that teaching problems are unique in the coaching sector is that in a math class, you're teaching students to solve problems, but they don't have to all solve the problem, 11 of them together um, in a fraction of a second. But on a soccer field, it's not just your individual ability to solve a problem, it's our, it's our it's predictable problem solving among a group of 11 and we have to be able to do it faster than the opposition and often make decisions faster than we can actually even have a conscious thought. And so, um, I ended up, you know, um, thinking about this and reading a ton of cognitive science about this for, for several years and ended up writing a book called the coach's guide to teaching, which is trying to sort of translate many of the things that I learned about teaching for coaches. And, um, and well, I guess that gets you pretty up to date. <laughs> One of the things that you mentioned, which I struggle to get across with the students that I teach in our program and, and just coaches in general, is this idea of data. Mm -hmm. We talk about data analytics from a percentage point of view, right? We see it in, in NFL games or NBA games where we get all this, this data and these percentages. 
But that's really not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about research that shows that X, Y, and Z is the way to go. Or we should do something this way instead of this way, instead of how I feel as a coach. Yeah. Or what I think is right. Or what I've seen my former coach do. We rely a lot on on our social learning. And and yet here you are coming in saying, you know what, I, I used I used data. I went in and I videoed and I broke down data to come up with some solutions. Am, am I wrong? Am I the only one seeing this or are you seeing it too when you're working with, with coaches and teachers? Um, yeah, no, I, th I think it's really, it's, I think you're right. And it's really important. And maybe in a couple ways, first of all, I think there's research, which is yes, left to their own devices in an environment with no feedback, people will fall back on what feels right or feels good. And, um, you know, teaching is in many ways, like a lot of sports, it's a bit of a wicked environment, which is like, which is what feels good to the teacher is not always what's most beneficial to the student. Mm. And I, you know, one of the first things that struck me when I started working in the coaching sector was how many of the shibboleths from, uh, from teaching had filtered into the coaching world. And they were often sort of things that were accepted as wisdom because it came from the teaching world, but actually they were myths. Can you give an example? Learning styles. Um, you know, that like, uh, I, there's no, um, there's no research at all around the idea of learning styles. I think the reason the idea of learning styles is compelling, I think is because, um, because we do so much of our learning through visual stimulus. And so we perceive ourselves to be visual learners and that's true, but, um, there isn't really any indication that people have a preferred learning style. And even if they did, the challenge of sport is that, and in and, and so many cases of learning is that the learning environment dictates the channel of information that you have to use, right? As an athlete, I have to, um, I have to use my visual perception to spot the space. And I have to use my trailing arm to sort of get a gauge on where the defender is near me. And I have to, you know, listen for the sound of the, the, the with which the ball is struck um, to determine, you know, how fast I'm going to, how fast I'm going to retreat or, you know, retreat or advance. And so, um, you know, I think that's a typical, that's a typical myth. Maybe a more profound myth is the, I, this, cause I, I find I struggle with this all the time is I think there's a belief in education that, um, because the ultimate goal is we want athletes to be problem solvers and critical thinkers that I should only teach critical thinking and problem solving and that I shouldn't teach facts and background knowledge. But I think it's, overwhelmingly true, a cognitive science scientist would tell you that critical thinking and problem solving are impossible without background knowledge, that we can only think deeply about things about which we know, we know a fair amount, you know? Um, and so what I see in a lot of soccer settings, and I think this happens in a lot of other sports is this belief that if I put players in a cognitively challenging environment and ask them questions uh, that they will, always be able to infer the right answer that somehow the answer is within them and that is simply not true but that if i spend a few minutes explaining principles of play to them beforehand or perceptive cues or details about how we might want to approach the situation then players will see and learn a lot more from that cognitively rich environment and so i think there's there's you know people will tell you, you should, in schools why should we teach facts facts are you know you can look anything up on Google. Uh, we should be teaching problem solving and, and higher order thinking. And the answer to that is because you can't do 
problem solving and higher order thinking unless you have background knowledge. You know, um, there's just a, a lot of research on um, the ways that novices and experts learn differently. And if you put someone in a, in a cognitively, in a perceptively rich environment, an expert will extract the right details and attend to the important signal and learn a lot from that situation. And a novice will not. A novice will be looking at random details and will, uh, even if they guess the right answer a few times, they won't recognize its correctness. They won't remember what they did. Um, they won't learn from it. And so um, more emphasis on background knowledge, I think, is also critically important in helping athletes succeed in, in a sports setting. So maybe those are a couple of examples of those kinds of just like myths that get passed down. Sure. Well, and, and in following that, then coaches shouldn't just be asking the why they should also be explaining it after the fact to provide the 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 athlete with the cues with the the knowledge necessary to make that decision later rather than why you know i'm going to ask a critical thinking question i'm going to get that response but then we're going to we're just going to stop there as yeah. opposed to okay let me break down the answer you got the right answer, but let me break down the answer, why this is the right answer so that they understand it moving forward. I think people often confuse questioning, which is really important for athletes to develop understanding with discovery. And I think that um, questioning can have a lot of different purposes. If you took, um, sorry for so, so many soccer analogies, but if you took the, you know, the principles of play that make Pep Guardiola one of the best soccer coaches in the world. They would fit on one page and we could all come to understand them within an hour. What's challenging is taking these principles of play and applying them in constantly changing situations under duress, playing against Jurgen Klopp, playing against elite athletes, playing in different situations. And so, yes, we can ask questions to say, what should we do here? But just as useful a question, maybe more interesting is we know we know we want it, what we wanted to hear. We want to play wide. What's challenging? Why are we struggling to play wide here? What do we need to do to play wide? Why were we successful playing playing wide there? Uh, and so those are those are all questions, but they start with knowledge, which is this is the thing we're trying to accomplish. There's still plenty of problem solving to be done, um, and plenty of questions to ask, and plenty of discussion to happen afterwards. So. Um, just because you're more knowledge driven does not mean you can't be engaging, interactive and, and use questions uh, to, you know, to uh, engage players cognitively. What are some of the, what are some of the, the challenges or maybe weaknesses in coaching and even in coaching education that you see now where, you know what, we really need to be teaching our coaches X, Y, and Z or about this or how to do this because yeah. it's an area that we see coaches continually lacking in. Um, well, I want to, <laughs> I might frame it a little bit more positively, but it's an opportunity for coaches to get better. But I think yeah. two, of the, two of the biggest gaps are maybe in the area of, of feedback um, and the area of, um, of memory. Okay. So maybe I'll go out of order and just start with, I think the single most overlooked aspect of learning is forgetting, which is as uh, a coach needs to understand the difference between performance and learning. 
cognitive science would define would decide a cognitive scientist would define learning as a change in long-term memory which means that um, performance is your ability to do something in the midst of being taught about it or studying it so if i'm trying to work on the zone press and we've been working on it for 45 minutes at the end of practice my players are really good at it because we've been spent we spent 45 minutes on it and i think great they've learned it we're going to crush it on saturday and the problem is the most overlooked thing in learning is forgetting. And as soon as your players walk off the field, they begin to forget. And uh, forgetting is a ruthless and tireless opponent. And by tomorrow, they will have forgotten half of it. And by Saturday, they will have forgotten, you know, the great majority of what they learned. And at halftime, you will say, guys, where's our zone press? I, we, I thought we I thought we talked about the zone press, you know, on Thursday. And I'm likely even to make that make an assumption about them as learners, that they don't want it, that they don't concentrate, that they don't care, that they're not, that there's some, some flaw with them. But in fact, the cognitive science is overwhelmingly clear. Unless I, um, unless I come back to something and cause players to have to engage in retrieval practice, which is remembering something that you've begun to forget multiple times, they will not remember. And to be able to use something in a performance environment it has to be really well encoded in long-term memory and my my ability to retrieve it has to be really really fluid so it have to has to be learned well and players have to be really adept at retrieval and so there what that tells us is that there's almost nothing that we can teach players in a single session that will endure in their memory that if i want them to be good at something i have to teach it and then come back to it two days later and then come back to it three days after that and then come back to it four days after that and that that is that's a huge oversight in training and you know, one of the very small things that i talk about in the coach's guide to teaching is so much of our planning around what we're going to do in, in practice is based on at least in the game of soccer is based, based on one week intervals right we play on saturday i plan my week based on what's going to happen on saturday but that gives me insufficient opportunities to bring things back into working memory that we that we've talked about previously and have players struggle to remember them which is important to to building long-term memory and so if that's the if that's the if my planning is always based on one one week intervals i will never get long-term memory and i'll always be recycling these ideas and then it'll be much more productive if i care about long-term learning to practice and sort to design training in like four to six week intervals where a topic can come up and come up and then come up again and come up again it sounds like um you're you're favoring something of of more of a rather than a block practice of one specific topic each session. We do part practice where we cover smaller things more regularly over time so that it's ingrained in that long-term memory. Yes. Uh, I think that like that serial and, and randomized practice is, you know, generally I think they're preferable to block practice. I think block practice is really useful when you're just learning a concept and you want to get to durability of understanding of the concept. So when I'm building understanding, I'm, I'm kind of okay with block practice. But I have to understand that I want to build both understanding and then I have to build memory. And memory seems like a really trivial thing and that it doesn't require a lot of focus and energy from coaches, but actually it's the most important thing. And so when I go from understanding to memory, then I want to be thinking about serial and randomized practice, which is I do something, I go away, I come as I go away to a different topic, players forget what we were working on and they come back and they have to struggle to remember it more. Yeah. And actually that struggle to remember it more is what will make them better in the long run, even though it will be harder for them that's the sort of principle behind serial practice and then random practices. And then I have to do it when I don't know it's coming and I can't predict in my mind that it's going to be a fastball now so I can get my body ready for the fastball. I have to read the fastball um, and, and prepare my body in a fraction of a second. And so that, um, you know, 
that's a huge so so for the most part i think that's right that um changing topics is you know when i first started looking at coaching i thought like a sustained zen like focus on a single topic would be the best way to learn it's probably the best way to get performance at the end of a practice session but it's not the best way to get long-term learning and i think those things are different well that's that's hard though for a coach because a lot of coaches are are placed in positions whereby win now yeah uh, hurry up and show success rather than look i'm i'm working on these athletes and it may be months before we see the progress of what i'm trying to achieve it's it's almost a, a juxtaposition for a coach yes it's <laughs> it's a really challenging situation to, to be in um i think it, it requires discipline to think about long-term learning for athletes but it's interesting also because a lot of the you know i talked to a bunch of really top tier coaches in writing the book. And I mean, one of them was Jesse Marsh, who's maybe the sort of one of the foremost soccer coaches in the US. And he said, even within the course of his season, um, he's thinking about when he starts the season, the, you know, the end of the season and what he wants players to be able to, if they get a few things wrong in the first games, he, he's actually okay with that, that he really wants to build a durable learning environment where by the end of the season, everyone understands the game model at the flash of an eye. And they, you know, in some ways it, it prepares you for the playoffs, which happen at the end if uh, if you're taking more of a long-term focus over the course of the season, right? As opposed to like, I'm managing for, I'm hoping that something will come out tomorrow. We're gonna learn this so we have it for the rest of the season. So I do think that there are definitely conflicts between the sort of short-term pressure of like we have to win tomorrow's game and the long-term pressure if we want to come, we want to have better understanding and, and these these concepts. But it's not only conflict. I think there are also places where like where the idea of long-term learning is actually kind of a can be a competitive advantage for some teams. A question. Yeah, yeah, um, somebody you know, I think. Uh, can you talk a little bit about emotional constancy in coaches and why it's important and helps athletes and then few, what coaches can do to get better at it? Yeah, it's real. Uh, it's so important because um, we know that players are going to struggle. Uh, and I would rather, you know, John Wooden has this great phrase about coaching. He says, you know, the art of teaching is knowing the difference between I taught it and they learned it. And so if I want to discover the gap between we talked about the zone press for an hour and you can actually do the zone press or, or you can't, or you can only do it against simple opposition, but you can't do it against complex opposition. I want them to feel comfortable and safe sharing that struggle with me and exposing their own misunderstandings. Because if the response is you struggle and I'm like, I thought we talked about this already, you know, then that's a disincentive to expose your mistake. And, and look, if you don't understand, it's going to come out. It's just a question of whether it comes out in practice on Wednesday or in the game on Saturday. Mm -hmm. And so emotional constancy is, I think, um, one of the key pieces of something that I call a culture of error, which is a combination of psychological safety. Culture of what? Sorry. Uh, sorry, a culture of error, okay. which is um, a combination of, I would say, like psychological safety. It's safe to make a mistake. I'm not going to shout at you. I'm not going to become mad at you for struggling to learn something if it's good faith error. And valuing the opportunity of errors as a learning opportunity, which is great. I'm so glad we made that mistake. It's something we're really going to know. It's one of the subtleties we're going to need to know for Saturday. So let's study it now and let's understand why that happens so we can get better. And so when I can be emotionally constant and calm, you know, it doesn't mean I have to be, it doesn't mean I have to um, 
be lax with my standards. I can still have high, high standards for athletes, but reteaching a setting where players don't feel like exposing a mistake, exposing misunderstanding results in recrimination, then they'll be more likely to share their misunderstandings with me. We can fix them more easily. The learning in that situation will be less defensive. And I think that, you know, in, in the long run, that's going to be a much more um, effective learning environment. And maybe that maybe that question also kind of transitioned. You had asked about sort of two things, two a couple of areas that were gaps for coaches. And, and the other thing I just wanted to point out was in the area of feedback. And I would define feedback as so you teach something, athletes try it, and then you give them feedback on their performance, which is you're telling people how they did it and like right. you asked them to practice. I think so much of feedback happens in opposition to the things we know about human cognitive architecture, which is essentially um, the difference between working memory and long-term memory. So working memory is the site of conscious thought. Any thought that you're conscious, that you're aware that you're having is probably happening in working memory. Your working memory is incredibly profoundly insightful. It's, you know, it gave us Hamlet and penicillin, but it also has some severe limitations. And one of them is that it's tiny and I can only hold a very small number of things in my working memory at any given time. It's like a glass of water. And if I try and pour too much of it, something, something comes out the other side. Um, and so um, lots of times we overload players working memory with feedback. So I'm working on building out of the back with my soccer players. And I say something like, okay, guys, when we're building out of the back, we need uh, they're playing pause. Guys, that was good. But when we're building out of the back, the ball needs to be struck on the ground at pace because the goal is to move the opposition side to side and expose gaps in their defensive alignment. So ball struck at fast on the ground at pace and it has to be struck to the back foot so we can receive it open up with our eyes up facing uh facing the opposition and wing back we've got to be high to create opportunities to press up the field ready go right mm. i just gave uh, a ton of pieces of feedback to play. i gave players all that feedback because i'm trying to make them better faster but the result is an overload on working memory can i keep all those things in my working memory at once absolutely i cannot so what happens to athletes? What happens Sorry. to athletes when they? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt you. One of the things that you said, which I thought was interesting, is you started with that was good. And, yeah. and one of the things we do as coaches is we say positive things, but we don't say what was positive about it. And so players don't know what to replicate. Exactly. Right? Uh, positive feedback is a great tool for motivation, and coaches use it for motivation all the time. But it's also a great tool for helping players understand, you know, players get things right all the time and fail to replicate them because someone doesn't help them understand what was what was right and what was right about it. And so that moment of like that was good because the ball was because the ball was moving at the pace it needs to move at. Every pass was crisp. Let me see more of that go. Right. That does two things. It gives players the opportunity to replicate their success and be aware of what caused them to be successful. But it also tells them when they're practicing one thing to focus on. And so the, the problem with giving people five pieces of feedback is, you know, then they start practicing what happens. Either I'm trying to think of five things at once, which means I can't really concentrate on anything. I can't use any of the feedback or every player chooses one thing at random to focus on. And I don't know the thing that they've chosen to focus on. So I can't tell them whether they're doing it well. And at the next stoppage, I have to repeat the same five points over and over again. So, you know, my, maybe the, I think if I was going to isolate one phrase and in the book that I think is most useful for coaches. It's a phrase that a, a rugby coach in New Zealand said to me, he said, if you chase five rabbits, you catch none. And we do that to athletes all the time with feedback, right? Here are five things to think about, go do it. And mm -hmm. they're, they're not catching any rabbits. 
it seems like it's slower, but it's actually faster if I'm building out of the back, say pause. Guys, when we're building out of the back, every ball has to be struck at pace quickly. So we move the opposition side to side. Two minutes, let me see that. Every pass struck at pace, go. Right, And then at the next stop, which I'm like, yeah, I like it. And the ball should be on the ground. So now let's try and add that piece, go. Right, And then players are concentrating on one thing. Can see, I can tell them whether it's successful. Yes, that's what we're looking for. That's the pace of pass that we want. And I can help them understand whether they're doing it effectively. And so I just think like this, these moments when athletes' working memories are overloaded by our feedback are chronic. They happen through a best of intentions. Like we're trying to accelerate the rate of learning, but they're chronic. And, um, and uh, they have the perverse outcome of what we want, which is they decelerate learning instead of accelerating it. I just I just came back from Racquetball's U.S. Open, and I, I do broadcasting for the for the women's tour, and so I get to sit front and center, and I, oftentimes I'm sitting right next to the coach and athlete, and get to hear and see everything that goes on, and I, and I bring those experiences back into my teaching. One of the things that that I see a lot of coaches doing, they take a timeout. The player has one minute to get as much instruction as possible. And here the coach comes full of energy and excitement and then spends an entire minute talking about what you just said. You got to do this. I want to see this. I want to see that. I've wondered why coaches do that. And at some point I wondered, is the coach doing that because they feel like they have to do or say something in order to justify their fee? I'm people are watching. I'm supposed to be the coach. I'm supposed to solve all these problems. So let me just. Yeah. Out, you, as opposed to do what the co the athlete really needs, which is sometimes one thing as yeah. you alluded to, and that's all that's necessary. Or me, or even just self just like, you know, it's so hard to exert self-discipline and to see so many things going on, right? You see 10 things going on, but the challenge is really to identify the one or two things that will help the most, especially in the middle of performance when like the first thing on our mind should be first do no harm, right? Yeah, um, and I, I've heard it, you know, oh, they're trying to earn their fee. They're trying to justify their, their salary. Right. I, you know, I hear those phrases of they're being very active. They're being very busy yeah. in order to, to maybe get people to believe that they yeah. Well, I think so, or, or it could be trying to justify their fee. It could be more like, like best intentions. I really, I want to help this person and I see them in a moment of duress and I, I want to help them or I want to be successful as a coach. I think there's ego involved also. I think, you know, I give this, um, I describe this case study, which is like, look, here are two, here are two youth coaches. One of them spends the week preparing his team really well, uh, for preparing her team really well for the game on Saturday. And they've anticipated some of the things the opposition is going to do. They've orchestrated the things that they're going to work on. They execute really well. She's silent on the sideline and the team wins. And she walks out to her, her car after the game and she overhears a parent say, wow, the kids were great today. The coach didn't have to do anything. Option B is the team is decently prepared, but not perfectly prepared and they're struggling to execute the things that they wanted to execute and the coach is shouting on the sideline and uh you know screaming things to the players and dramatically you know walk pacing up and down and makes a you know key substitution at the end and they pull out the victory at the end 
you know, we want the substitution. And in the parking lot at the end, um, you know, the, the, the coach overhears, uh, she overhears the parents saying, you know, um, wow, coach really pulled one out today for the kids. You know, one of the, which one of those is better coaching? Which one of those soothes your ego, right? One of the, one of the, one case, the coach gets all the credit and the other case is actually better coaching, but it's, I just think that one of the very legit, you know, people take pride in their work with good reason. They want to be successful. I just think this challenge of managing wanting to be perceived as the source of the, of athlete success is a real challenge for, uh, it's just a real challenge in the profession that I, you know, I don't know that you ever can put it to bed entirely. Because I know so many, I know many coaches struggle with it. But you know, how many coaches would choose A over B to have the have have all the all the fans and all the parents um, overlook their 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 contribution versus have made a lesser contribution but be given a ton of credit for it? I just think that's a real challenge. In in just kind of summarizing, when we when we look at coach education, we have a responsibility myself and anyone else in coach education to, to give our students the best knowledge and opportunity to learn to be great coaches but within coach education i see a lot of fundamental holes and and areas where coaches come out of that weekend training or that course or that certificate with with maybe more knowledge as you alluded to where they have facts but but don't really walk away being better coaches. Where do we need to focus our efforts in order to ensure that those coaches coming out are, are maybe more, more challenged to be self-learners as opposed to what typically I see in a lot of clinics where coaches have to go, they need the credit hours, they need the, the, the you know, accreditation hours, whatever they need. And it's, it's a, do I have to go? And then yeah. when they go, oh, I already know this stuff anyway, and out the door they go, I'm good for another year. Yeah. Where where do we really need to emphasize or help coaches, given the fact that a lot of them are not motivated to learn more content? Yeah, and also I would say that a lot of coaches would perceive themselves to be motivated to learn content, but they would describe the setting as, you know, a place where you go where everyone is competing to be the smartest and so like you know and and to say the wise thing uh during the session and so why would i you know why would i participate in that session well i see a lot of coaching as well it's it's all about the sport mm -hmm. or, or sorry coach education it's it's about the sport right here's yeah. how we do the press here's how we play defense here's how yeah. we can train goalies to be more efficient or or more effective rather than how do you get a team to work together? How do you, yeah. how do you get them to learn skills more quickly? I don't see very much of that. Yeah. I think it's fascinating because it's also interestingly an issue in schools. Um, and I think that the, the research is pretty clear that, um, that professional development works better when it's embedded within the life of an organization. So if I go to a professional development workshop or session one interaction it's the same as we were saying about practice which is one iteration one iteration is very unlikely to, it's a very unlikely to change behavior 
what I need is for it to be embedded in convert either in like observation and supervision. So like we talk about this idea of like, we're all going to work on our feedback. And then the director of coaching in my club says, Oh, I'll come watch you and give you feedback on your feedback. And then I'll come again and sort of sustains the focus and sends an email. Oh, I saw Tim's session yesterday. He did such a great job with feedback. Here's, here's a little clip of him doing it. Love how hard we're all working on this, that, you know, when professional development is embedded with within the culture of an organization, it, it has the hope of changing behavior. And when it's not, it's, it's much less likely to. Um, and so like, you know, how do we build sustained, you know, su sustained interactions around, around learning for coaches is, I think that's, that's a real challenge. I think that, yeah, you know, I, I'm exploring kind of the idea of, of mentorship programs where yeah. we, even if it's not an in-person environment, it is a, a position whereby we have a, a long-term relationship where we can work one-on-one -on -one as opposed to as as you alluded to and i did it i was a teacher and then i became a, an assessor of teachers we go into the schools it's a one-time shot here's the report yeah. well done or or terrible or you need work whatever it is bye i'll never see you again it it really doesn't give us a a true perspective of what they're doing well and what their the areas they need to improve on because it's very canned it's very rehearsed yeah a colleague of mine who was a, a really great school principal once said to me um you know accountability is a bad word to most people uh, but accountability to me is he said is is a good word and a beautiful word accountability to me is helping people to do the thing to follow through on the things that they said they wanted to do and so he said my meetings with my my teachers are um it starts with last time we were together, you said you were working on, or you wanted to work on this. How's it going? What can you show me to tell me, you know, to tell me about your progress and the things you've tried? Let's talk about what the things that you think are barriers to doing this. But a lot of what he said was what I'm, I hope that it feels loving to my teachers, but what it is is accountability, which is you said you were working on this. How's it forcing a conversation about, and for about a thing you said prior to, you wanted to prioritize and causing it to be constantly at the top of your attention and to help you resist distraction. And I think there are, you know, to, there are a lot of ways that that can play out. It can be the organization doing that, but it also could be a mentor. It also could be, you know, you could put together, together a virtual network of people who just said, you know, we're going to meet on zoom every week and we're all going to try and work on our feedback and just come back and talk to each other about it. And those sort of, that to me is, um accountability and not not a bad word version of accountability that if we want to get better at things we really have to construct ways to make ourselves accountable doug if if somebody wants to get in touch with you later after watching this um what's the best way for them to do so um two ways you can uh, i'm on social media i'm doug underscore lamav on twitter uh and that's uh for better or for worse <laughs> I'm on Twitter. Uh, and you can also email me. I'm dlamov at uncommonschools.org. Um, and I'm always happy to talk. I might be slow getting back to you sometimes, but I'm always happy to talk. Uh, well, I, I know you're you're a busy man, and I really do want to say thank you for, for sharing a little bit of your insight. And uh, I, I hope those watching have found it beneficial. Thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it.
All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks so much for watching. Of course, uh, we try about once a week to do an interview with a guest. If you haven't yet subscribed to the YouTube channel, be sure to do so. But until next time, on behalf of myself, Tim Baghurst and Doug Lamov, thanks so much for watching. Thanks. Everybody.